Okay. You there. Yes, you are. Hello, welcome. Hello, robot. Nice to meet oh. you. <laughs> oh, God. Um, hello, robot. I, for one, hello, welcome. listeners. I'm the robot, my overlords. <laughs> um, hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Flail Forward, where we are flailing forward and talking about DM guidance and agency tools and such. Mm-hmm. I'm Fred. There is Kevoir here. Hello. And also Catrice. Whether you want me here or not. Oh my god, there may be a Rob. There, there may be Rob in the future. <laughs> oh, never mind. Um, anyway. We scare everyone away. That's fine. <laughs> it's fine. But, yeah. So, today, we are going to talk about basically the concept of when you have the GM in a like a roleplay game and essentially they we have several games now where there's a growing philosophy of instead of the GM being absolutely god with full control over every aspect of the game it's more like the GM is playing almost like a character or role themselves where there's a limit to what they're able to do. Like here's a strict list of moves and actions that you can use in certain uh, times or conditions that either acts as like a guideline for what the GM should be doing at any certain time, roughly how much power they should have in like combat or during social situations and such, or basically just, almost removing the GM as a as like a concept and more so game is on rails and the GM's just there to to patch things up when it goes off the rails. So I don't think I'd describe it quite like that. And yeah, I don't think I would either. I mean there are some games that kind of have that feeling to them, but I think well, actually, how would you describe these kinds of things then? I mean, I, I, it's hard to say because obviously there are a bunch, but I think the way I would describe it is more it's um, like distributing power more evenly around the table, so to speak. Um, so it's not just like taking, you know, putting it on rails, but it's kind of giving everyone equal control of the train or more equal control of the train, if you'll follow my clumsy metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, what the a lot of the games that Catrice is talking about, I think, are are trying to promote a back and forth of the conversation where uh, GM is responsible for certain things, whereas players are responsible for things that are given a smaller number of things that are given a heavier weight in the overall metaphysics of the game in a number of ways, like they control the things the game's actually about and the GM controls the things that the environment in which they are set loose to destroy. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's pretty accurate on that part. 
My... It just, it's just more honest about that than uh, other games are, and it doesn't treat that like a bad thing, despite the... But maybe the games turning out like that just normally is a function of me as a person, not a function... Yeah, anyway, sorry. Fair enough. No, for for the reference to Fred's thing, though, the only reason I'd be against like that to some degree is that there are definitely games that they are distributing the GM's abilities through other players. I mean more so in the sense of like when you have the actions of the GM, like the stereotypical actions of like the historical all-powerful GM, instead of going to the players, they end up automating some of these things so that it's it's basically like they're trying to take away from the burden of the GM having to do like a bunch of this stuff and figuring it out on their own. Like how powerful should the monsters be? I don't know. It's GM Fiat. Just do whatever you think feels good. And it's like, yeah, but I want it to be sort of a specific difficulty level. And it's like, okay, well here, we'll give you three options. Just pick one of the options. You don't actually have to think about it. It's not really distributing the power to the players, but it's not, really giving it to the GM either in a lot of ways. It's often just giving it to the game as a mechanical system on its own in many cases. I mean, yeah, though I don't... I guess I don't see that very often in games like the thing that you're explicitly talking about. Maybe I'm just reading different games than you do um there certainly are things like one of the things that i think you might be talking about is the um like the powered by the apocalypse gm move list which does kind of or is supposed to at least kind of funnel gm action into a certain kind of place um but i think that that's also very interpretable i think that's why that works yeah yeah i think it's good that you can you know mess with these things like you probably should if you have a gm there like you have thinking creature in instead of an automated system um make use of that fact i don't just be like yeah well the rules say do this 100 percent of the time it's like well you have somebody there to make judgment okay. calls Could, okay catrice have you looked at how open most gm moves in a powered by the apocalypse game are yeah, and that's why I'm not using it directly as an example. Okay, okay, because it's like... <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking more like... Um, I was actually watching a video earlier where somebody was going in to find details over um, the Octoon uh, Cthulhu 2D20 system. So the idea is basically like they're setting up like Call of Cthulhu, but as an action game kind of thing. That's a pulp thing, I think. Yeah, it is very pulpy. It's basically like sort of World War II-ish kind of thing. Like, you know, the idea that the Nazis have been studying the occult and making uh, deals with eldritch powers and such and then you have like heroes that are basically going to gun down 
like these eldritch abominations and such instead of being like normal people terrified of them. So it's kind of a weird setup, but um, because the way that they do this, there's things like, say, a threat mechanic where when players perform an action and it's like, okay, we've screwed up, we rolled really badly, we're going to have some really bad complications and problems happening. The players can just opt to not suffer those complications. And instead, the GM gets two threat to work with. For example, if the players give up uh, two complications, GM gets two threat. And they can, the GM can then spend that threat to make bad things happen for the players later on. And it's interesting to me because this basically means that you're in a situation where for this to make any sense to work, the GM basically has to be throttled in what they're capable of doing. Otherwise, they could just choose to do these extra things without the threat mechanic, in which case the threat mechanic is completely useless. Like, you have to limit what the GM can do for it to even make sense as a concept. Yes. I mean, yeah. I guess I I don't know how that exactly works, so I don't see that as a bad thing, necessarily. No, I'm not calling it a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying that this is bad or anything. I'm just saying that this is a situation in a game where it seems like this is not giving uh, the power directly to the players, though it is indirectly doing it, because you're basically making the players make sort of a devil's bargain kind of decision where it's like, okay, you can avoid failing this role right now but you're going to pay for it later on and you there is an actual mechanized form of the game that is driving this forward so that when the players make this kind of a choice then it's being pulled entirely out of the gm's hands and it's much more in uh the the other players hands as you were describing fred replies than I thought it would. <laughs> I because you're equating things that are not necessarily equating, but but okay, then the argue with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to untangle how to respond properly. Uh, okay, so the it uh, these tones. Okay, I think where our point of contention is coming in is you said. Uh, it's not utilizing the fact that there's a living brain that can make choices on the, on the other side, but the system you described in the abstract, uh, we don't have any information that implies that. And uh, fair enough. So if, if you want to give us more information that would imply that, that'd be, that'd be okay, but uh, if you're going to leave it at that, it's hard for 
me to come up with the response. No, good enough. And it's probably like I don't think this particular situation is one that probably follows that explicit of an issue because I think it is actually closer to like what Fred was describing. But this is just what had me thinking about the idea that you could build a game and I'm certain somebody has where the GM is not really supposed to be doing all that much. Actually, I know of an example where somebody did that, but that's a really weird example. Yeah, I think there are a couple, like, unplayer um, games where the GM is just kind of mostly algorithm sort of based. Oh, I can't speak to <laughs> how good or bad those are, because as soon as I see that, my eyes glaze over and I can't care. Um, but <laughs> that's... I, I think that's definitely a thing that people are interested in. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if so, if somebody came out with a, um, you know, here's a, a formula for GMing. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at it at all. Like, it's, it's not even really a bad thing, especially if it's like single player game where you just want a specific kind of thing to go on. You just want to be like, okay, here's what I'm inputting, and the game will automatically output stuff to me that because it's using an algorithm, it may mean that what I'm inputting, I cannot reasonably predict what the outcome is going to be in some cases. Oh, I want, oh I'm, t- I'm thinking about Iron Sworn, which is which is basically it it has a formula for how hard challenges are supposed to be and it has a formula of, like this is how it does its uh it has a gm mode and a gmless mode and the basically the gm mode is the is instead of roll on this random table if you're really stuck it is the gm will figure it out if you're really stuck and it and <laughs> <laughs> it and the gm is also setting the challenges rather than the players like figuring, like, using the the text of the game to figure out how challenging things should be based on the challenge writing. Um, try, try, but even then, like, there are Iron Sworn, it's like, even it's, like, fully randomly generated, this is what happens, still requires a, a thinking brain that can, like, co- use context to make it, a, it, to make the proper thing happen. Yeah, and I think that's probably going to be true for most games, especially since it this does feel like something that's still relatively new of a concept, and I don't think we're super deep into having figured out like automated ways to do a lot of these things currently. I think we might be seeing more of it in like the next decade or so, where as we develop almost like social technologies in this kind of space where we've learned what does and doesn't work, uh, we'll probably start seeing games that lean more towards, here's something that the GM really doesn't need to be thinking about and it's extra burden for them. We can probably just automate this from the rules side entirely 
and skip over having to have the GM even consider it in the first place. And then they can focus their attention on other more interesting parts of the game. And I think that might actually be a good way for a uh, game design to go in the future. I, I mean, possibly, I still think, you know, in any case, you're always going to have to have, like, something, uh, a human brain to introduce context and to kind of make it make sense within the certain scenario, because there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all thing, um, at least in kind of, I think, the context of what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> though now I'm just thinking about playing an, like, playing an RPG with an AI GM, which... I... So you put so these oh god I'm trying to remember what that thing was called. So you you input so you're playing an RPG normally, but uh, when you need to, you you just kind of submit the the full text of the game to to like a transcription of the game to that one or to that one oh god that one AI script generator. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say like. Uh, one of those chat bots or something, but that works too. Uh, ch- the evolution of that. Hmm. Um. Well, I. I mean, I was thinking of you know probably further in the future of just having you know you you buy you know D and D seventh edition and it comes with a little disc or SD card or whatever the fuck um, that you put in your holographic projector and it projects the. D and D GM, then you know that has been coded by Indie Daddy to run your games for you. But that's entirely besides anything in reality. So, but, okay, <laughs> I feel like uh, you know we we've been doing this like offloading of. Um, I don't know, creativity or narrative responsibility onto the system uh, for a long time, you know, and talking about like, uh, especially like random encounter tables, which have been in role playing games for a really long time. And then recently (laughs) more so we've been offloading or I shouldn't say we, but designers in some places have been offloading more of it onto the players um, as well as offloading some of it onto the game and the systems. I mean, that's definitely something that has been happening, and I I don't think that's really a bad thing in a lot of cases, but it depends on, like, the players wanting to do that, too. Like, have seen situations, um, oh, for example, when we did, we did that test of Monster Hearts, and it was like, yeah, make up, like, all the, uh, students in the classroom and Rob was just like, no, I just don't want to do this. Hmm. It's like, you do have to have the players actually be receptive to doing that. And a lot of players will be, but um, a lot of players I find do have certain things that are more common in, in players than in GMs and vice versa. Like, if you have a GM, they're vastly more likely to want to have like the personality type that's just like I want to sit down and build an entire planet just because I can. Whereas players, you'll get some players that will be interested in doing that, but 
usually it's more people that want to be a GM or a player, not just like a player. So if you try to offload this entirely onto players so that all the players can do it, it might sound great from like a game designer perspective because you're probably the kind of person that does that. It might sound great from the GM perspective, but a lot of the time I find it doesn't work handing it to the players unless you do it something like how Mark does it with his uh, questionnaire sheet for um, Praxis Arcanum, where he's basically like, there's something really weird about this world. Uh, what is it? Is it like magic or giant robots or there's something weird about it? What is it? And he just hands it to the players and it's broad enough of a concept that most players will either have at least one player that starts things off and others build upon it, or they'll come up with some kind of concept on their own. But it's not like, here, name like 20 NPCs kind of thing. Yeah, I, that is a good way to offload that kind of res, uh, that kind of control um, or responsibility. And yeah, you're right. That doesn't work for every player. And obviously, that you know, uh, for me, if when I'm a player in a game, like I've been, I've played in D and D games, and I don't like having that, having those restrictions on me. Maybe because I am that type of person that you're describing, but I don't like not being able to go. Oh, there's something weird in this room, or there's something interesting because it's just more the way I am. So yeah, all all things need player buy-in, but like. As you were, you know, as you said, ugh, God. Uh, <laughs> as you said, like giving that, um, like with Imark's game, giving that kind of one little piece that they can work on is still putting some of that and, you know, having players tell you this is what is interesting to me, which I think is a lot of what the benefit of offloading that um, responsibility is. Yeah, I do think this is an extremely useful thing for game design that we're getting into relatively recently just in the design space for like designers as a whole for these games i we're only just starting to realize that the players are a very valuable uh commodity and it's not just up to the gm to hopefully make something the players will enjoy but it's like yeah the players right there you can ask them like what are you interested in? Now, the thing is, players often don't know what they're interested in with such a vague description. So, like, just saying, okay, what kind of game do you want to play? It's like, I don't know, a role-playing game? It's like, that's not... It's not narrow enough for the players to give you a valuable answer. So, we are starting to notice that you can actually narrow this down to a useful directed question that basically nudges the players towards this kind of concept of what do you actually want out of your game? So that like the GM knows what they want to make with it. The game knows what parts of it to build into it. If it's like a modular type system uh, this kind of thing. Like the players, you need player input to a degree 
and we've kind of previously in older generations of RPGs just kind of been skipping over this step or making assumptions for the players without asking them. I agree. This is Rob joining. Hey. Twenty something. Anyway. Okay. Do you want Thank me to you. send the links over to you now, or do you want me to wait till later? Oh, later, I guess, or now. Okay. I don't care. I'm gonna do it now, so I don't forget. That's a probably a good idea. How are you, y'all? You, you the plural. Doing pretty good, y'all. And this is actually working out pretty well. So. Everybody else doing well? Yes, hello. Do you have any comments on the on this so we can redirect it? Because I think we were at something resembling Flo's point. Yeah, yeah I and, kind of wander off a little bit off topic, but I think we're getting yeah. back into it. Yeah. <laughs> so, moves GMs can take? Is that what we're talking about? How much guidance agency does the GM, GM get? How much? Yeah. yeah. I think he... Zero to a hundred. I don't think either extreme is probably a good idea. I think mm-hmm. that's actually a good thing to mention is that like if you give a GM hundred percent godlike power, you are putting all of the burden on the GM. Like you're not giving them anything to work with, anything to springboard off of. Like you're basically putting them in a position where it's like the whole you're in the middle of the ocean, what do you do? Like, which direction do you go? And it's like, that's not a useful question. It helps if you're the guiding shark direction. the direction. Yeah. Sharks. Have a, well. Put sharks in the ocean. Now they got a direction. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is something that tells you, okay, sharks might be interesting, but sharks are probably bad. It, it gives you something to work with anyway. Maybe they're cuddle sharks. Maybe they're really nice. Maybe maybe, maybe it is one of the sixteen settings where sharks are just domesticated. Anyway, yeah, this could totally happen. But this again, it's it's a direct, directed nudge for the GM to to work with something. Whereas, like, um, what I was using as an example previously for this one because Rob wasn't here for it was the idea of like in 2d20 systems the idea of like player threat this is i think this came up originally with in like the original like star wars rpg i don't remember but it was was basically like players perform an action action goes horribly wrong they're like okay so instead of dealing with the fallout for this action we're going to get threat or threat dice or some kind of thing where we're handing the GM something that they can use against us as a plot device in the future or to mess with our roles or make an enemy stronger than they would be otherwise or something bad is going to happen and we are choosing to do this and we're handing the GM a tool to do this with. But for this to make sense, the GM has to be throttled 
in some way in what they're capable of doing because you can't have the omnipotent GM pure fiat where they can create anything in the first place as they feel like it. Otherwise, this entire system makes absolutely no sense. It's like, okay, you can throw a dragon at the players at level one if you feel like, but we'll give you the option to throw two dragons at them, but you could have already done that already. In which case, it doesn't actually have any teeth to it kind of thing, right? I've, I've had that. I totally hear what you're saying. <clears throat> if the, the, uh, Let me uh, come at it from a different angle. I, the Star Wars thing that you mentioned is interesting because that's like the, yeah, you can just make this. It, this is the thing about GM agency that I think you just hit the nail on the head of, of which you just hit the nail on the, whatever. Uh, what was I saying? Yes. Now I understand. The thing, uh, what I was saying was the, um, nope, lost it again. It's been oh. that kind of day. That's fair. Oh, uh, something about the GMs. Is this like having a conversation with a, with a, with a half senile wizard? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna uh, say with me, but that works too. Uh, fair enough. Um, Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing about like giving the G like taking away GM agency and then dribbling it back, right? Like, hey, you could have made this adventure X this difficult, like you're saying, like you can have this is really hard to talk about without concrete examples. Let's say let's say uh you're in fate, right? We're playing fate. Fate has a very robust uh fate point economy where you you trade points back and forth as as the game happens. So in Fate, the whole point is you are supposed to present the players with challenges, and then by virtue of the players having aspects that uh, would be uh, uh, a barrier in such challenges, they are saddled with a mechanical penalty, usually a, a two-shift penalty, I think it is, for Fate. You get plus two, minus two, whatever, what you're doing. Uh, the point is, is that um, the GM's not expected to be able to simply arbitrarily make enemies better or worse at will, right? Whereas in a game like Pathfinder, yeah, let's say Pathfinder, um, you uh, can sort of put... There's no mechanic by which the game lets you make things more difficult. You simply have to change the difficulty, or more or less difficult, you have to change the difficulty on the fly by fiat, right? And games that give you the freedom to do that are trusting the GM with a certain kind of, certain kind of power where they're not going to abuse it. And fate is not exactly doing that, but they're more like saying the players have access to the amount of agency, the, like knowledgeable access to, to about the amount of, of agency the GM has currently. Which is a weird structure now that I think about it. But it seems to be the case. Thoughts? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, yeah. That, that that is a that is a weird thing to think about. Uh, 
I don't know what I do, uh, what to say about that. Uh, well, you think it's in, accurate? yeah, okay. there is some accuracy, although uh, there is actually some encounter building in fate in a weird way because, in theory, skill lists are predefined in fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is basically the equivalent, but there's a lot less to them. But yeah, actually, uh, meaning, meaning meaning the campaign's skills that are. What, no, what do you I mean? mean, I mean, enemy. I mean, enemies when drawn into an encounter in fate have a skill list, mm-hmm. or at least of the relevant combat skills. Uh, and I, right. I thought there was something I wanted to say about that, but I'm not sure anymore. I, uh, well, in that they're generally not arbitrary; they're generally within yeah. a particular range of where the players are. Yeah, and that tends not to move in fate very much. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. That's just, that's the, if people are into that style of play, that's good. What do you guys do in your games for GM agency? I mean, for me, I'm trying to figure out exactly that thing right now because it looks like I might be somewhere in the zero to 20% range of GM agency. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> probably not, not entirely zero, but, but creeping up on. Okay, what what in the current iteration uh, <laughs> is the GM responsible for deciding? What in the current iteration is it? Uh, the GM is responsible for deciding. Which of the players' things they dread is going to present itself at this moment, I think. That's... That might be the whole thing. That might be all of it. It's basically <laughs> it's, it's sequencing sequencing the horror of events so that it kind of makes sense. Okay. How, my next question is: How much control do I have over the over the particular instance of horror? The of uh, how should I phrase this? I need to phrase this in a very clean way, otherwise it's going to be very confusing. So give me a second. Okay. How much control does the guide have over? how the horror manifests within established characters. Like, how much control do they have of the established characters that are part of the communities that the players are inter- are weighing? They're, 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 they're bounded by what the players have already introduced. So, um, they're, okay, so let they can paint with the colors and paintbrushes that the players have given them in some sense. So it's like if the players have decided that um, they, they, well, let's say one player has decided that the apocalypse that they experienced was a rot spell, right? And um, the the community that they were once a part of were uh, I don't know, what's some what's what's a community? Uh, mushroom Church. Girl. Church, okay. church, church of mushroom growers. Great, perfect. Good enough. Um, this sounds actually pretty accurate to history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so the enemy of the church of the mushroom growers, right, would have the opposite proclivities uh, of of the you know, uh, and um, would probably be using rot magic in a way that the church considered obscene or perverse. 
And so from that, you the GM paints inside that little box. So the player has already said, I want to deal with uh, rot magic seems cool to me. Religious themes seem cool to me. And um, we were in charge of uh, food supply. Cool. So now you have like, okay, so rot magic's going to figure in. Um, there's going to be either sectarian violence or uh, antithetical theocracy theocratic violence, you know, the opposite of whatever the church believes this other group's going to believe. And then you have um, what what the gap in the local economy is now, which is there's no, there's a food supply shortage or a food shortage because all the people that were in your organization are fucking dead. So um, I mean, you, have, you have set up, you have set up the major theme and the, the your your first core problem and what shape that takes is now the guide is going to extract out more things, but the the guide's painting inside that box now. Okay, so, so sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was going to use this as like an example. So if you have a question first, Fred, go right ahead. Uh, I have a question, but it might be kind of big, so you should go first. Right, Fred. Okay, fine. So. If Rob, if, if Rob. um, <laughs> so Rob, if what you're saying, if Rob, like your GM, no. not Rob, sorry, go ahead. Oh, God, um, so if Rob, if Rob's, if Rob, Rob, Rob's, no, um, so Rob, if in mm-hmm. your game the GM or guide or whatever you want to call it yep. has such little power, like if you're saying yep. zero to twenty percent. Why mm-hmm. not? Why have you not made a GMless game? Ah, great question. Great question. Because the element of surprise is still necessary. So the, for, for, I, I need the thing in the box that the GM is painting, the guide is painting, to be a surprise to the players in its manifestation. Hmm. But, okay, sure, that makes some sense, but couldn't surprise come from another player at the table? Like, you know, if I say something, it could still be surprising to you, even if I'm not the guide. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. The guide is listening for that the whole time. So they're only really in charge of narrowing it into the, uh, the manifest thing. Right, they're what they're what they're the the guy in in ashes is really listening, trying to listen closely to what the players are scared of more than anything else, and then weave that into whatever's in that box. So there's a great deal of um, paying attention going on. You know, it's it's less about. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I took something Kat said a long time ago to heart, which is which is you really need like a processor. And you, there are GMless games or distributed GM duty games where um, all the players experience surprise, right? Differently. But the nature of Ashes uh, is about taking these individual stories that the players are coming up with, these individual narratives and seeing where they synthesize and the guide is kind of like that top level synthesizer 
So, so in in the box that I just told you about that this this player created with the rot church food thing, um, the guide will uh, at some point probably draw pull in another a thread from another player that seems relevant, right? So if another player has a religious conflict going on or there's there's uh, something of that nature, well then they may make that appear in this box. And that will be a that's that's one of the ways the players can be surprised. So so there's um the the guide is engineering coincidence. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's the that's that's the most succinct way of putting it. That's what the guides do it. They're engineering coincidence. <clears throat> okay. So I'd like to run an example of this while you mm-hmm. just see if this actually is how this would work. So you have yeah, a guide actually now that you're saying it. Go ahead. Let's say that the players have set up the thing like you've said, like the church, their control of rot and food supply. And okay, they've mentioned that there's a lack of food. Mm-hmm. So now it's the GM's job to come in and spe- specify that the specific version of how things are going wrong is that basically there's a new secular type church that's basically preaching like this sort of communist utopia setup where we can just feed everyone. Like we can just make more food and everybody will be fed. It'll be great. And the, the original church is like, um, there's a problem with that. Like you're basically stripping the ground of resources mm-hmm. in 10 years. We're not going to be able to grow food period. That's why we have these specific religious rules painted down from the gods telling us that we're not supposed to use more than a certain amount of food every year. And I know we're starving right now, but you just have to trust us that this is a good thing. And the normal people do not understand this, and they just know they're starving now. They don't right. care about 10 years from now. They care about now, now. Mm-hmm. So does yeah, this sound basically like how that would work? Yeah, that's one way. That's one way a guide could spin that. Yeah. If that's if if there were things in what the players described about those initial seed conditions where, yeah, a super secular version of it that was making essentially religious level promises and going to steer the entire civilization into a mountain, uh, that would be that, that. That is a very fine existential level threat for the players to deal with. And it wouldn't be that initially, right? So the whole point is that you would not know that that was the problem right at the start. The, the, the GM would, that would allow the players to start to fill in the, the box by ha- letting them explore because it's assumed that the players are a blank slate starting out, right? They're they're rediscovering the world as they re-inhabit it. So they're not going to know initially that if if the the opposing organization was a secular one or uh, you know a sectarian one, where it was so um, okay, that's so... something that they might specify, or the GM might, or the guide might specify as an as a result of an investigation that the player is making where the player has a suspicion about what might be the case and then reveals it. Themselves. It almost sounds like part of the reason that you want 
the GM in charge here, like for the GM to exist at all, is specifically because they can think out in advance here better than like an automated system can, where it's like the GM can figure out, okay, this is the root cause of the problem. I've already figured that out. But all you, the players are going to see to start with is there's a bit of hunger problems and some people have just started mentioning, well, can't we just increase her rations a little bit? Like, I know it goes against the rules of the church, but can't we have, like, you know, peas and potatoes in the same meal? I mean, that won't piss the gods right. off too much, will it? Right, 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 right. Exactly. No, that, that's, that's how ideally it would, something like that would happen. Yes, it, it would be where there's small interpersonal conflicts and then those interpersonal conflicts reveal um, interfactional conflicts and then those reveal, you know, the big regional conflicts of some, some point. And it would be, you know, food scarcity would be one thing, right, that would provoke that. And then the player during the thing, well, so the player's answering the question. The guide is not at, at coming up with an end point from the player's start point. The guide is simply laying the next piece of track for the players. That's that's really it. So, yeah, in insofar as they um, they just sort of manage the very next thing and the successive doing of that will build to a climax naturally because the game forces it to basically. I suppose that's kind of good. I might actually suggest that you give the GM coaching to start thinking of potential things that can branch off from it. Like think no. of a... No, no. Opposite hmm? of what happens. No. <laughs> the the okay. GM is not supposed to think at all. GM should shut their fucking mind off, actually, when running Ashes. That is a very awkward situation. <laughs> <laughs> You, you shut up and listen is is the the first the first thing that Ash's GM should do. Don't yeah, think that Don't. is definitely yeah. more restrictive than how I would be doing things. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's 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 inside out it, in a, in a sense because you're not you're not planning adventures for the players. You're letting the players move down uh, an adventure that's not yet set. You're just giving them the next set piece each time because you don't. The game will naturally shove you into a climactic situation that involves more than one of the players. Um, it just, you don't know how at the start. So part of, I hope, of what I, what I hope what will, GMs will get out of Running Ashes is this, uh, the fun of um, coming up with, with the, the set pieces for the next thing for using the stuff the players have just done. So there's a constant, you're not, you're, you know, because it's a no prep game, essentially that, that you're, there's a constant um, back and forth of um, the GM taking player input and uh, setting up a new, um, setting up a new scenario or that's, that's not really the way to put it. Uh, on a new scenario it's just sort of the next the next thing based on what the players have told them really well it's not a good explanation or at least it's not one 
I don't find it satisfactory. I don't imagine anyone else would either. So there. There. You want I, to say something, Fred? Uh, I, I just think I, it's an I, interesting yeah. relationship uh, between uh, players and GMs to kind of have the GM be a much more reactive and passive role. It's, yeah, it's, it's a switch, as you said. Um, and yeah, it's an inversion. Yeah, it's a little because because normally it's I don't know. I guess it's because there's a there's a certain element of my style that's just lazy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very extreme on the end of open world sandbox kind of thing. Like you do whatever you kind of feel is interesting to do. But I like my main issue with this is that it does limit the degree of things that can be used as literary tools. Like with this kind of setup, it is basically impossible to use foreshadowing as a tool. Because uh, for the GM, yes. The, for the players yeah. get to do it all the time. Yeah. Like the players can do it, but to some degree, like this is the kind of thing that I've generally found most players enjoy it when the GM springs something on them that they didn't expect, they didn't recognize, but when they see it, it's like you've been planning this for like the last month and we only just saw it now. Right. Well, the thing is that so Ashes is supposed to deliver on those moments by by actively handing the, the guide the players blind spots. I'd like to see that actually in action and if it actually works because that would be neat if it did. <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope it I hope it does work. Um the the whole point is that because because the players are constantly telling you what they're interested in, you know the game will give you the opposite thing that they're not that they're ignoring. Hopefully so. Like I I'm cautiously optimistic on this. I, I think if it can be done, you'll probably find a way to do it. I'm not sure if you have succeeded in this yet, but I like the hope that it could be done. Yeah, a blind spot generator. The thing is, so so the the thing that the players may discover is that they get to call each other on their blind spots. So it's one of the things that the game encourages is is that thing. So it's um, um, ah, you've created a PvP game indirectly. It uh, it's a a PvP. I mean, I, I guess if you think calling people on their blind spots is adversarial, I mean it is in a sense. But um, in in this way, it's supposed to be like, oh, I was focused here. And then there's this other problem growing over here. I'm, you know, and and because we're all fate wizards, right? Like you can, you can, you have a justification for noticing my blind spot as a player. Like as you as a player has has a has a in-game meta. That's uh, uh, no, not meta. It's a it's a meta justification for the the noticing the other character ignoring something, right? And. Um, which is not not pleasant for that player, and in fact, their and and their or their character, their character would uh, may suffer 
um, may suffer horror or probably would suffer horror at when that's happening because then they, they realize that the problem that they've been ignoring is actually a problem, right? And then they either realize uh, their own apathy, or cruelty, or despair at that moment and then take some. And uh, that that becomes a thing for them to overcome, but it's a thing for them to overcome that was generated by the actions of another player noticing a problem. It just mm. it just mechanizes the now there's a problem and you can undo this, but it just mechanizes that. Just hope that all your players aren't oblivious. Well, it's an unobliviating engine, hopefully. <laughs> if they're gonna advance, <laughs> that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> It's uh, it, it, hopefully it is a game that improves attention paying capacity in terms of uh, what, you know, uh, structuring, structuring thoughts so that attention is more easily delivered where the thinker wishes it to go rather than being scattered all over the place. I mean, hopefully so. Yep. What's my two cents? This is just the point where I would say, like, this is where it's a good idea to have a backup plan for a GM to be like, okay, nobody has noticed anything, but I'm seeing the gaps I could exploit. I should probably put those in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like a failsafe. Uh... I don't know that I'm trusting the system that much. Um, uh, there, it, I think being a GM for, for Ashes requires like probably having played through the game at least once. Otherwise, oh, make- that, that, that's not a good state to be in. No, no. It yeah. does make it a little bit difficult at the start, but I, I mean, it yeah. can be done. Like, let's be fair. D&D does the same thing. And it's gotten away with it. So Yeah, it got away with it. It just took a long time to propagate. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you might want to find shortcuts for propagating it because of that. Because you basically, you would have to personally run a game for somebody, essentially for them to know how to run it themselves. And then once they've experienced it they can do it themselves and it can spread outwards from there but yeah it it does need something to kick the branching out a little bit quicker yeah maybe i'm in a rush good enough i mean if you don't (laughs) have any need to make profit off it or anything at any point in the near future i mean that's fair yeah also, uh, playability is not where profit lies in marketing your RPG, so, you know, it's fine. True. Which is <laughs> awkward. Really? But it is true. It is a very accurate observation, Kovar. I will. The world's most popular RPG, in fact, is uh, <clears throat> somewhat has somewhat high barriers to entry. It's a little bit weird about that. But, yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Rifts doesn't have a very high barrier of entry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Rifts it isn't the most popular RPG, though. GM. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Rifts. Oh, yeah. 
There's a lot of people who don't even know Riffs exist. Well, more people now know because we mentioned it on this podcast. That's for sure. Because people listen to this, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Listeners. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like, in every American two home. of you now. No. Yeah. Canadian. We are broadcasting live to uh, 300 million people right now. On sweet. 377.8. what? 77.8 KQ78 RS. Okay, are you communicating with the communists? What's going on? <laughs> saying a radio call sign, but and making it bad. So don't don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, I got the radio thing. Yeah, yeah. Aren't radio call signs supposed to start with K? Yeah. It depends. It said it depends. KQ something. Yeah. You did. I missed that part. Okay. Yeah. Nope. Totally Unless, heard it. Yeah. Unless they're a like low um, power station, and then it starts with something else. I think. W, right? Uh, w. I think in some places. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Uh. So I've looked over that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, I'd like to run something that I've been working on the past few days, thinking about this kind of thing myself, because it's like, I have been trying to set this up in a way that's vaguely controlling what actions the GM has, but giving them wiggle room to work within it as well and also for the players to have some control over this as well so the way i've actually been working on this is through system that is still in development but it's it's going to be vitally important to the game which is basically the guardian angel character that the gm's going to be playing as mm -hmm. so what I've basically got at the moment is they're going to have a number of skills, different ranks. So it'll be set up kind of similar to the players, but it'll be things like uh, like resources, combat, non-combat stuff, personal intervention. Like these will each be separate groups of skills that they'll have. So say resources might be things like monetary rewards, like gold tokens that kind of thing uh influence over the treasure players get um crafting resources that they get from like monsters quests things like that so that would be in like one group so they might get so many points to spend on their skills in this group and it's separate from the um points they get to spend on skills for like the interest and size of dungeons, the strength of enemy creatures and unique stuff that they can add to them, environmental modifiers in combat, traps, things like that, so that like the GM would be able to set up like a balance between uh, the types of things that they have access to. Like I have a lot of resources in enemy design like i can requisition like custom built specialized monster that'll be more interesting than normal 
but I don't have to worry about like the complexity of the dungeon that it's in nearly as much because the the guardian angel just doesn't have like the social connections or the resources to funnel into both of them at the same time so they get to uh split what they're going to be focusing on mm. but so what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is the GM, the GM has a character that levels up with the players, and sort of do they learn the game as mm-hmm. they go? That yeah, a little bit. Okay. A little bit, yeah. So they'll get more access to things as they go. There's also um, some things that'll let you vary this a bit. So like personality type for the guardian angel as a character can change things. Like you might have a a harsher like the the type of parental figure that does like tough love kind of thing. It's like, okay, you're going to get more out of this. So my monsters are going to be a bitch to fight, but you're going to get bigger rewards for doing it kind of thing. So you could actually customize your character in such a way so that you get more points into the enemies, but you also get more points into, say, the the treasure and the experience players get for fighting. So you could actually build a combat focused version of the game rather than one that's more um, built around questing kind of thing. Interesting. And in addition to this, the other thing I want to add here. was it? Oh, players would also be able to influence this a bit. It's like being able to do, like, you know, the concept of, like, what we were co- covering earlier, like, the the devil's bargain kind of thing. Like, you can succeed, like, at this difficult task. Like, okay, for this special ability you want to use on the boss, you can't actually, you're not going to hit with it you know that you're going to fail the role or like you've already made the role and it's like okay i can force this to work it's going to require two extra skill for this and when i do that i basically temporarily give it to the gm that in their negative thing like their enemies their dungeons their traps that kind of thing they suddenly get two extra points to allocate as if they were better at this than they normally would be. So when the players give themselves an advantage, they're also given the GM, their guardian angel, a greater advantage to put them into a more difficult challenge in the first place. So that it's sort of self-regulating for difficulty. Interesting. Cool. Uh, yeah, it, I, I kind of like that in theory, but I also feel like that's a little too limiting. Um, it's, it's, I mean, and maybe I'm just not seeing everything here, but it sounds like in the course of, you know, especially a longer campaign, you're going to kind of, if you're having the same kind of theme, you're running into, you know, the same kind of things over and over again. It sounds like it might get a little repetitive. I, uh, may, may I defend Kat's vision for a moment? Oh. Sure, go right yeah. ahead. Because what I'm hearing here is something very similar to the way, uh, say, fourth edition worked, 
but far more codified. So uh, 4th edition had, uh, 4th edition D&D, sorry, uh, had a pretty uh, tight encounter design system where the players, at whatever level they were, you added that many monsters to the fight, and that was the fight. And then there were subdivisions and stuff within that, but that was the basic premise. Um, and then, uh, you know, certain tiers had added different stuff. So, like, you wouldn't fight anything that was really flying until 5th level plus. You wouldn't, you know, do anything that was mind. There wouldn't be very much mind control uh, below 10th level. There would be um, not really crazy terrain-altering powers below 15. You know, there were different benchmarks. And it sounds like uh, what Kat's doing is essentially just setting benchmarks for what the players should expect to encounter. Well, not should, the players shouldn't expect, but what, what the game expects the players to encounter set as benchmarks, but as conceptualized as levels of GM-ness, if that makes sense. Kind of in a way, yeah. Okay. I, I think it's a good idea. I, 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 I like the idea of having a character that advances uh, and... Um, the players are interested in how that character advances because it actually changes things. Um, there, I, I, I've not heard of a dynamic like that where the players are interested in like the, the advancement of a specific GM overlord character that's kind of or like on their side, but not. And also, yes, I mean, but no. I, the thing that it immediately reminded me of was the Ryujin from Ryutama. It's a bit more complicated than that, but the Ryujin do have some leveling up abilities mm-hmm. um, and stuff, but yeah. Hmm. How's, how's that work? Explain a little bit more. Uh, I haven't read that. So it's, it's been a minute, so I might mess up some details here. But basically, you choose... So the GM chooses a Ryujin at the start of the game, which is kind of like a... Uh, personification of their um, seasonal dragon. So you have like um, I can't remember. I think there's a wind. There's like a winter and a fall. Um, but there's one where it's like okay. So this Ryujin is more about like adventure and happy times, and this one is about combat, and this one is about mercantilism or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, but then. As you go through the game, um, as you, I think it's just by session, basically. Like, after a certain number of sessions, you gain points and can earn new um, minor powers that the GM can use, depending on what kind of Ryujin that you are. Um, So, like, and they're usually little powers that can help the players, because you're supposed to be kind of a helpful entity for the most part. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm, is there something in the game that prevents you from helping the players normally? Um, you're fairly limited to the actual powers that you have. Um, you can like you can as the Ryujin uh, take a human form and just help the players out like that. Though you're discouraged from doing so, but I don't think there's anything in the rules text that specifically says that you cannot. Interesting. And but and kind of the idea of Ryutama is that the Ryujin collect the stories that the characters um, are making, and that is what 
that is what they eat, basically, are these stories that travelers create. And that's kind of that's the cool. core conceit. Yeah, it's a cool thing. And I, and that's one of the things that bugged me about Royutama 2, was kind of having that separate Ryujin character that leveled up a little bit. Just because, mm-hmm. I don't know, I find that that can kind of get in the way for me. Um, but granted, I never played a really long campaign of it, so maybe it shakes out better in the long run. Hmm. 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 Um, Good enough. Um, I do want to answer something for Fred as well. So, the thing you'd mentioned about it being kind of samey, like I can see this kind of potential issue. So, the thing that I'm noticing is that players usually develop a sort of play style that like the type of game they want to play. So some of this is going to be based on the GM as well. Some of it's going to be based on the players. Like some players really like puzzles. Some players really don't like puzzles and they don't want to see it in their game. So the idea is more so that the the players at the start of the game, they're telling the GM what they want based on the plot hooks their characters have, the sins of their characters, this kind of information the GM already has. So, and the session zero thing of determining, like, what type of fun do you actually enjoy in your game? Like, what do you find interesting? Do you want a lot of combat in the game? Okay, then I should actually make it so that we do combat in the game kind of thing. So by building your initial character like this, the guardian angel basically lets it so that the GM can structure the nature of the game to match the players. But because what players think they want and what they actually enjoy, maybe two separate things. And as they play the game, they might actually find more stuff they didn't really consider. Sure. Then as the G as your guardian angel is gaining in power, they're also gaining in the ability to provide more of what the players want. So they can direct the, the increases of this guardian angel character to actually match what the players are wanting. So the game's partially self-correcting in that way. But I also kind of want to have, like one thing I'm toying with at the moment is the idea that every time the players finish one of their uh, strides on the path to redemption thing, like basically you've essentially gained the equivalent of about five levels and you've figured out this level of understanding of your character and their story arc, Mm -hmm. which is moderately quantified in this game. So as you do that, this gives like a baseline increase to all of the skills for the GM's uh, guardian angel character. So they get a bit more resources to work with everything. So as the players are more capable of doing stuff, the GM's more capable of throwing more stuff at them as well. There is a caveat to that, which is that the overarching storyline that's going on in the background, like basically this ends up into a sort of civil war thing going on for 
like the guardian angels that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So at some point they're actually going to, through their own storyline, start losing access to certain things. So like if they side with the druids, okay, great. You get more stuff for creating dungeons, more stuff for creating uh, unique styles of monsters and stuff. But you no longer have the same sway you used to have with the other faction, which was basically allowing you to do things like build specific um, detailed things for the players to deal with, like not just like monsters, but the kinds of rewards they would have or the social situations they'd run into. So the the guardian angel might actually end up having to go against their own better judgment. Like, well, this is what's best for my player characters that I'm trying to take care of and provide them the types of things that they need to grow. But I don't agree with this side in their war, but if I do this, I'm not going to have the same access to the resources that I wanted to, to do the thing that the players wanted. So it's going to put them into this sort of awkward position where they might have to make these uncomfortable decisions and they might actually have to have their character in game go to the play to the player characters and be like, um, I know you really like these huge sprawling dungeons. I don't have the resources I used to have to make these. What can we do at this situation to actually put you into the position that you're going to learn the things that you want to learn? Mm. <clears throat> and that embroils them in the in the in the meta plot, basically, because then they yeah. care about then they care about the the resources, and then they investigate why the the guardian angel has. So as as yeah. so so this is built into basically every version. This sort of ascension into the uh, the meta plot of like okay, so once you are, and this is kind of like the, reflecting the the journey, the epic level journey, if I may, mm -hmm. in doing the sort of like oh, okay, well we're we're fighting. Okay, we fit. We've beaten like all the guys in this region. It's like oh, now we're fighting like the son of a god or something or a demigod and then like then the deity itself gets involved and blah 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 you know that's sort of like the oblique meta story of D, &D right ever since they came out with uh, deities and demigods and it was like okay we can kill these things well i guess that's the end game de facto right i think um you're you're wise in codifying the the uh major story beats into uh, something the players care about in that way that affects them directly uh, so that they have a, mm -hmm. a, a reason to investigate beyond oh I'm the players need to investigate this other game doesn't work but you are okay. you are essentially making them putting them in a position to to care they don't have to care. Like, they can just ignore it if they want entirely, or they can actually influence the output of this war. So it can actually directly benefit them. Like, 
oh, we don't have access to as much treasure as we used to have. Um, we want treasure, though. It might actually be in our interests to actually do something about this because it's directly affecting us. Right. It's not something they have to do, but I think it's I think it's a good idea just as a general trend that major events that happen in the world should actually affect the players so that they're invested in it. Like this can affect your own uh, character, like not just the characters themselves, but the things that the players are invested in, like setting up the stronghold for this. You get a town that's associated with it. You get NPCs that are associated with it. So even if the players aren't that interested in their stronghold directly, this is something that's anchoring them to the game world. Like there's characters that you actually enjoy and like, and some of them you will have created yourself. So these NPCs exist. You like these NPCs. Bad things are starting to happen to the NPCs. Um, you actually have personal investment in doing something about this instead of just being aloof and only caring about your own selves because this is something that you care about as well because you personally created it. You said this was interesting. Now it's actually directly affecting you kind of thing. Right, right, right. Well, That's cool. On that note, I got to bounce. Thanks for the chat. I will be... Uh... I gotta go too, obviously. Oh my god, I'm gonna fall asleep. Okay, thanks guys. Sorry, Fred. No, it's okay. I'm sorry for boring you. Oh, you're not boring worry, me. I, I will speak in monotone so that you do not yeah. have any problems yes. with staying awake any longer. <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys, have a good night. Good night. Good night. So, do you want to keep talking? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this was good, I think, unless there's anything else that you want to bring up. Uh, not really. Okay. Good night, everyone. Good night. Have, because it's always night where you are. <laughs>